Hello, and you are listening to Squash Radio. This is a brand new podcast that wants to bring the inside of squash to life by serving up the best stories. We are launching this channel with some in-depth interviews with some great people from the squash world. But we're also trying a little experiment first by doing two versions of each interview. One is the full-length interview that Squash Radio had with each guest, and two is a more produced version that takes some of the highlights from each conversation. Making those cuts is actually pretty challenging since we think it's all great content. But let us know what you think. Should we continue to do both? Send us an email to squashradio at gmail.com. Also, if you have any great stories that involve squash, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and thank you for listening. What about this? This call is... Hey there, Squash fans. Well, today we have a great guest for you. Uh, His name is Christopher Gordon, and he's originally from New York City. And he's been at the top of the squash scene here in the United States for the past 15 years. He's done that by achieving a world ranking of number 44. He's represented Team USA almost more than anyone in history with five world team championships, three Pan American games, two world games, two world junior championships, and a handful of Pan Am Federation Cups. Christopher has also been number one in the United States and has won the U.S. National Championship. Beyond his achievements on the court, Chris has also been an amazing ambassador for the sport of squash. He's done exhibitions all over the country. He's also commentated on Squash TV, even emceeing for the U.S. Open. I got to know Christopher in New York City when I first started out my squash career, and we overlapped when I was trying out for Team USA, yet not even coming close to achieving what he had. I also worked with him through the national championships, the U.S. Open, and Team USA when I worked uh, for U.S. Squash. But I hope this conversation helps you get to know him a little bit better like I have over the years. So here's a quick little overview of what Christopher and I sit down and talk about. And uh, some of the insights you'll learn have to do with what actually happens with the professional players and signing up for a tournament. What happens in the last few minutes before a tournament on the PSA Tour closes. We also dive into his support network of what makes him one of the top athletes in the United States, where he credits U.S. Squash Elite Athlete Program, his coaches, his family, but he has sponsors. And some of the ways that he got his sponsors might surprise you. Lastly, we close it out with him representing Team USA, as well as what winning the national championships in 2013 meant to him. So without further ado, here's Christopher Gordon. All right. Well, welcome to uh, Squash Radio, and uh, we have a great guest today, Christopher Gordon. I want to thank you for being one of our uh, first guests here on Squash Radio and doing this podcast, and really appreciate you taking the time to uh, connect with us today. No, thank you so much, Connor. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, I want to just uh, jump straight into it, and basing it off of uh, something that's recently just ended is the Tournament of Champions and uh, Grand Central Station. And I know being a New Yorker yourself, this must have had such an impact on you growing up that I uh, just want to spend a few minutes talking about that. Like, do you remember your first TOC experience? Wow. I mean, I don't actually remember the first one because there, there've been so many, but I remember as, I remember as a really young, young kid that it played a huge role in, in 
my enthusiasm for the game and motivating me to become a professional player. I mean, I remember as a kid staying up till all hours of the night watching some of the some unbelievable matches and I also remember helping out a little bit with the tournament in terms of like during the day, like putting programs on some of the patrons' seats and, <laughs> yeah. and you know, getting towels in the right areas and stuff like that. And I remember it was always a real, a really huge highlight on my yearly calendar. So when you first saw the, the tournament champions, were you, had you already been playing squash and you, you were drawn to it or did you see squash for the first time at the no, tournament? No, I'd already, I'd already been. I'd already been playing a couple of years, but I'd never, at that point, I'd never really seen high level professional squash. Um, I'd seen domestic professional squash, but never, never the top players in the world. And I'd certainly never seen a glass court. So I was really fascinated with, with the glass court. Well, actually at that time it was Perspex, but (laughs) like all the, yeah, all the colors and the sound the ball made hitting it. It was so profound. I found it a really exciting thing and something that I really wanted to hopefully be part of one day. And do you, do you happen to remember what, um, like the first match you, you saw that you're like, Oh my God, these guys are amazing. Like, what is this? I don't remember the first match, but I certainly remember, um, I remember some of the players that were involved in those early tournaments. I saw, you know, players like Peter Nickel, Jonathan power, um, Paul Johnson, Peter yeah. Marshall, um, Del Harris, Simon Park, Ahmed yeah. Barada, and I was really lucky because at the time I was, I was one of you know the top juniors here in the New York area, and I played at a club, the Harvard Club, a couple blocks away. So a lot of times the players would come by to use the courts to practice and things like that. So I got a few opportunities to be close to them on on their off days and interact with them and some of those memories were, were pretty special memories. Like one of them that was really unique was I remember Ahmed Barada after, I think he won a quarterfinal or something. And it was really late in the evening. It was about nine at night or something like that. He, he needed a court to practice on for some reason. He needed to have another 20 minutes of practice. And Richard Chin, who was the pro at the club at the Harvard club said he could come over and do a little bit of solo. And I remember walking with Barada and my father to show him the way to the club and then waiting there for him to take him back to Grand Central after he practiced. <laughs> and it was, it was just kind of a, a cool little, um, a cool little experience that was a background look at the sport that as a young boy, I wouldn't have had normally. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so along those lines, I actually want to talk about, um, you becoming a professional. I mean, uh, I remember you meeting you at a pretty, pretty young age. I think you must've been 11 or 12. And, uh, uh, you said, I'm going to become a professional squash player. When did you have that? So firmly set in your mind that you wanted to pursue something like that? Um, so I was always, I was always from an extremely young age. I was always fascinated by sport and, and, um, loved, loved professional sports um funnily enough at at a really young age like when i was five or six i was more aware of college sports so i really had had a dream to be a college athlete originally i was a college hockey player because i used to watch a lot of college hockey and Mm -hmm. then um as i got older i became more aware that college was a stepping stone to the pros and that's when i really zeroed in on professional sport being what I wanted to do because it was the highest, the highest level you could strive to compete at. 
Right. And probably a catalyzing moment for me was when I was, I think I was about 12, I went for the first time to Europe to play. And I played in the British Open under, British Junior Open under 13. And I think I lost in the first round and maybe won a round in the plate and then lost in the next round. So it kind of shows just how, how off the mark of the top, top juniors <laughs> in the world I was. But just being there and getting to see some of the top juniors in the world right up to juniors who, were, who would be turning pro soon, I found really inspiring. And I love the idea of traveling to compete and things like that. And that was a moment where I really said to myself, I want to I really make this a goal of mine and work as hard as I can to make this a reality. Yeah. Well, so uh, it looks like, uh, and this is on your PSA profile, um, you officially turned professional in 2002. I mean, in 2002, I wouldn't have really considered myself a professional. So I think the first year or two, I was, I was quote unquote on tour. I, I only played one or two tournaments and it was mostly just an opportunity to get experience because we had a few tournaments at the time here in the States. And it was just a chance for me to kind of get my feet wet and see just how, how high the level really was and how much work I had to do. Um, I think my my first pro tournament was actually in Oklahoma City. And I think in the first round, I'm, I think I played an English player called Shahid Khan that actually works in Detroit now. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So the first, the first year I played Oklahoma City, and then the second year I was on tour, I played... Salt Lake City and Oklahoma City back to back, I believe. So those were really my my first experiences on the tour. And how did those go? I I can't remember very well. I think maybe my first match I might have I might have lost in five games, but I'm not a hundred I'm not a hundred percent sure if it was that close or if I'm just looking back at rose colored <laughs> spectacles, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But I remember the I remember the experience of being being around the event and being around the players was was a really kind of profound thing for me and seeing how how the players even even after they lost would still go and train twice a day and just being in that environment was something that I really enjoyed and helped motivate me for for the years to come. Yeah. Um, what was one of your most memorable, uh, first wins and one of your most memorable first losses on the pro tour Uh, on the pro tour? Wow. I mean, we're, we're going back. Yeah, this is, this is testing Um, you, man. (laughs) Um, I, I remember I had, I remember in Salt Lake one year, I played Patrick Chifunda and we had a huge match and I, I can't actually remember if I won it or lost it. Um, It, it was a five setter, but the main thing, the most important thing for me was that I was competitive at that level and that whether I won or lost, I was in the mix, you know? So it really yeah. gave me, um, it gave me confidence that I could move, move forward, you know? Yeah. And then a really big moment for me as well was I, um, when I was 18, I went down and played a $10,000 tournament in Guyana, Brazil. And I managed to make the semifinals. I in the first round I beat Dylan Bennett from Holland and then in the quarterfinals I beat Fabian Kalaitzis from Greece and in the semis I lost to Bradley Ball and that was a real 
a real confidence boost and really made me feel like I belonged amongst those players. And this might be something that I'd be able to do successfully. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I mean, you've had now, um, you're coming up on, on close to 15 years worth of experience on, on the pro tour. And, you know, uh, I think during, during that time, there's been, whether you, you mark it in, in five, 10, 15 year differences. I mean, there's been some marked differences and, you know, can you just talk a little bit about what you've seen as some of the biggest difference on the pro tour now? Well, I mean, I have this conversation. I've I've had this conversation all 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 the time, actually, with with Chris Simpson, who was another player of my generation. Um, we played a lot, we actually played a lot in junior squash, and both of us kind of agree that it was a very difficult generation growing up in in terms of in terms of knowing how to advance and and be confident inside yourself because there were so many changes that took place in the sport yeah. when. When we started playing junior squash, we were obviously playing to nine on the 19-inch 10. So we we're playing that hand-in, hand-out scoring. And then as we became young professionals, the scoring system changed to 15, point to rally. And then after several years, it was still point to rally to 15, but they dropped the 10 to 17 inches. And then after we got three or four years into our career, it all went to 11. And the tactics completely changed overnight instead of playing to 15, 11, it was, everything was super quick. Everything became about attacking. And then even in the last year or two, it's been, it's been interesting with some of the ways that rules are now being interpreted. They've, the PSA has made a concerted effort to slightly alter, alter the interpretation of rules to make the game more flowing and more pleasing for TV. And it's been really great for the game and really great for the spectators. But as a player, it takes a little bit of time to process and want to adjust your tactics, tactics. Yeah. Yeah. Your tactics and everything about how you're playing the game, make sure what you're doing is really maximizing on the scoring system and the, and the rules, you know? Yeah. Who do you think as, uh, as, as one of the players on the, on the tour today, you know, who, who do you think adapted quickest to those changes, um, or uses the, the new rules the most effectively? I think that that's really tough to answer because I think it, some of that depends on circumstance in terms yeah. of in terms of you know what sort of matches you've been involved in and kind of what kind of situations have come up in those matches i think certainly players that are on the higher end of the ranking system that are participating in world series events con- consistently it's probably been a little bit clearer for them because they're obviously all all their matches are on squash tv and a lot of those matches are being used to help um help train referees and help demonstrate what um what the PSA is looking for in terms of from the players and also in terms of from the referees so it's a little bit easier to get an understanding of what you need to do because you have that visual feedback where for mm-hmm. some of the lower ranked players that are playing in some of the smaller venues it can be a little bit tricky because you're not always playing first of all you're almost never playing on squash TV. And secondly, you're not always playing on low tens. Sometimes you're on high tens and, and the conditions aren't always ideal. So it can be a bit of a trickier process. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think a good, good way of phrasing that is that there's, there's so many different stages within squash world, right? You know, at the, um, the world, mm-hmm. se- the world series level compared to anything below that on your standard courts. Yeah, no, I would agree. 
Well, I mean, I know there's also been a, a lot of you talked a little bit about the the scoring system, squash TV coming in. Those are some of the the obvious changes that the audiences might have seen throughout the years. Is there anything you think that's got, kind of gone unnoticed that just, you know, more, more of the players on the tours kind of how they're approaching it differently? Some of the unnoticed changes? To um, the I think maybe, yeah, I think maybe one of the un, unnoticed, unnoticed changes that's just a product of how society is now is with social media. The players are so much more accessible than they used to be. Mm. Um, especially the top players tend to be very, very active on social media because it helped promote their, their own personal brands. And it's something that the sponsors like them to do. And yeah. it's a very easy way to actually reach out and interact with the players. And I've even seen instances on Twitter uh, because all the players obviously watch squash TV and amongst themselves weigh in on matches and things. I've even seen instances where players are engaging fans because fans have questions about stuff that's happened or comments and players dive in there and yeah. give their opinion. And that's certainly something that was never happening, you know, 15 years ago when I joined the tour because social media just wasn't what it is today. Yeah, absolutely. And how uh, are, are you uh, fairly active on uh, the social media? Uh, I mean, I, I probably could be a bit more active. I, I do have um, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Um, I tend to not post too much. I tend to like to sit in the background and lurk and see what everyone else is saying and take it all in. But I, I do on occasion get involved. And actually, funnily enough, going back to your previous question about some changes that, that squash fans wouldn't have realized, I just thought of a really, really unique one. Yeah. So 15 years ago, when I joined the tour, all your entry forms for PSA tournaments would be faxed in. <laughs> and now, obviously, it's done with an online portal where we all have our own password and go on and see entry lists and and um, you know and can enter tournaments based on who else has entered. But back in the day, you basically were just putting your name in blindly and hoping you got a you got a good draw. Where now the players are very savvy; they're entering tournaments and seeing um, who else has entered, and then pulling out if they don't don't think they're opportunity is as good in one tournament as the other. So that aspect of the game has changed dramatically as well. Oh, so interesting. So the, the players, uh, and is that something you guys talk about where you just, you're, you more notice what's going on as trends in, in terms of like, Hey, uh, this tournament's really strong. So maybe I should skip that one. Is that something? Oh, just... that's no, it's something, I mean, we probably, you know, we dedicate hours on hours at tournaments to chatting about this stuff, you know? Yeah. Back when I joined the tour and we were faxing in entries, basically to find out who else was in a tournament, you'd have to call the office and ask one of the secretaries if she could read off a couple entry lists to you. And oh, if wow. you didn't really fancy your chances, then you'd ask her to pull your name out of one of them. So it was a bit of it was a bit of a process, right? And it's and you could only service one one person at a time, so you wouldn't really get tons and tons of people calling in, you know? Yeah. Well, not to mention um, the time, time differences too. Exactly. Yeah. Cause it was all based around, around an English working day. Cause the office used to be in Cardiff and Wales, yeah. um, where, or I should say a British working day <laughs> where, um, where now with it being on the online portal, we can all see entry lists in real time. And it makes a big difference. It's quite funny, actually, basically our tournaments all close at noontime on a predetermined day. And then if you're in the main draw, you have 
I believe it's uh, 12. You have 16. No, you have um, 24. You have 28 hours to pull out, basically. So you have it closes at noon on, say, a Wednesday, and then you'd have till um, 4 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time on the Thursday to pull out. And the the 10 minutes before that 4 p.m. on the following day, the amount of movement in the entry lists is incredible. Really? So, yeah. So, and you'll even get players in those last couple of minutes before tournament closes, you'll have guys in group chats on their phone, texting each other, asking what tournaments people are playing and everyone's kind of jockeying and jockeying for position to get the best draws possible. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of like the different, uh, just to, just to give a context of rankings, like what are the different levels of rankings that you think that impacts the most? Um, I mean, obviously the very top players in the world are only going to be playing world series events. So, they're pretty mu- they're basically you know just putting their name in the top events in the world and leaving it there but pretty much everyone else i'd say from 25 or 30 in the world down it can make a it can make a huge difference to even you know try like for instance let's say you're 35 in the world the difference between playing a 25k and being the number 1 seed or maybe being in qualifying for a hundred K is a big difference, you know? Yeah. So players are always of any level are always looking for that slight advantage and trying to make the decision that they think will be most beneficial for them. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, I want to give you a hypothetical that um, let's say you're in charge of squash everywhere in the world right now. Is there any rule that you would want to uh, to change that you think would be, you know, either good for yourself or good for the game? Or if you can make any one rule change, what would it be? Yeah, the rule that I would love to change, I'm not sure it would necessarily have a dramatic impact on the sport, but it would just make things easier to, it would just make it easier to explain things is I think when a player is hit with a ball, no matter where the ball is going, whether it's the front wall, the side wall, the back wall, it should just automatically be a lap. I'm not a big fan of hitting a player with a ball going to the front wall and awarding a stroke a stroke to the striking player. I just think um I just think we've all agreed we don't want to encourage players hitting other players. So my question is if we don't want to encourage it, why are we rewarding a player for hitting someone? Something for uh, the PSA and everyone to consider, or the, the governing bodies. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting. Yeah, one. and I, I and I also think as well, just just with that rule, it makes it it makes it a bit easier as well to explain to to explain to new club players. You know, just it's a blanket thing. If you if you hit someone with the ball, it's not it's not recommended to do, and it's an automatic lap. Yeah, you know, you and ever? a lot of the reason why. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of the reason why I'd like to change it is. A, it's super frustrating when you when you get hit hit with a ball by accident and you lose the point. Plus, as well, I've had a, a lot of club players approach me when they're just starting the game and say, "If I get a point for for hitting someone with a ball, what stops me from doing that every point of the match?" And you're kind of <laughs> like, "Well, it's not within the spirit." Really of the stop- game. Yeah, nothing really stops you except it's kind of it's kind of not cool, but. <laughs> Yeah. No, so that would so. that would be my pick for for rule change. All right, I like it. Um now I want to imagine that you're uh you know being a veteran on the tour that um that for new players coming on that there's actually a job interview process for new PSA players and you're interviewing 
uh, one of the the new prospect players, what would be some of the questions you'd you'd want to ask them to see if they uh, they had the right stuff to to make it on the tour? Um, oh, that's that's tricky because there because there are a lot of ways to um, there are a lot of ways to especially in this day and age with how big the tour has grown, there are a lot of ways to go on the tour and be successful. But I think the kind of questions that I'd want to ask would be related to self-reliance and resilience in terms of being able to get yourself around the world on, on a fairly, on a fairly low budget. And then also questions about being able to pass time on your own and, and still maintain high levels of positivity, you know? Mm. Part of the reason why you're asking that is like, that must be some of the keys to being successful on the tour, right? Yeah. I mean, the thing about it is, and, and you might notice, like, I didn't really ask anything about sport because it goes without saying, if you're going to want to be a top level sports person, you're going to have to work extremely hard and you're going to have to go through certain amounts of physical, physical discomfort, you know, and pretty much everyone can do that, you know, if they have the motivation, but it's some of the more lifestyle aspects that people don't really expect. They can really break people down over, over a period of time, you know? Yeah. Life on tour is, is, I would say it has a glamorous appeal, but then there's, there's kind of a harsh reality to it as well. Um, uh, of, of how, like you said, um, how you navigate it. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people see the world series events and they see squash TV, they see the glass courts, they see some of the fantastic venues we have, but what people don't really see is what it takes to get to those major events. And they don't see some of the, some of the lower lower tournaments where you're having to go to some really small secondary cities to some really unique far flung far flung places and the process you have to go to get there and to be able to play well even though you're far away from home and don't always really understand what's going on around you sure yeah well um you know to to to, to your point i mean i think they're um there's some similarities of this in, in other sports. I mean, this, this is very uh, pr- true probably today in tennis as well, but certainly true of tennis back uh, a few years ago. And, you know, uh, one of the things that I think we see now on the main stage is just how incredible um, our athletes are, our elite athletes are uh, as compared to mm-hmm. other sports. And, and I think something that is talked about more uh, just because of access of, of social media, technology, um, internet, everything they can read more about how these athletes train. And, and you can see that there's, um, it's not just what the athlete by themselves do, but really the team that they build up around them. And I remember mm-hmm. talking to you, this must've been, I don't know, gosh, like at least 10 years ago, um, in talking to you and just, just hearing about you, the, the team that you built up yourself. And I just wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about that in terms of uh, let's start with where you are today and then how that, um, back into like how you built that up and how that was kind of some of the changes and tweaks that you've made along the way. So who would you say today, like is part of quote your team? Yeah, well, I mean, the team aspect is, is really important because to, to be a successful athlete there, there are a couple components that go into it. Obviously you have to be gifted with your sports specific skills. You need to be fit. 
and you need to be healthy and you need to have a good living situation. So, um, so you need to somehow create those aspects. Some players are lucky, luckier than others because some countries automatically have those situations created for them where they have a national, a national system that the players basically buy, have to, you know, buy into and, and then all those services are provided. Um, in the U.S., we're we're slowly moving in that direction, but it's not quite fully there yet. Um, yeah. So I I sort you of to, had, you have to do a lot of this on your own. Right? I had to do a lot of that, find that structure on my own for myself as a young professional. Um, so now at this point in time, in terms of at the top of the pyramid, I'm I'm very well funded now by U.S. Squash with their Elite Athlete Program, which is has been a big help financially to take a bit of the burden of burden of traveling around the world off. So that's, that's a huge, huge weight off my shoulders. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of the, the performance end of it, I have my, my squash coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, Who's that? I always, um, as a young, as a young pro, I was super involved with um, David Pearson in England and now the last couple of years here in New York, I'm, I work very closely with Andre Delhaust, who's mm. a Frenchman. And that, that relationship has been, been a very special one. And it's been really unique because he actually lives halfway between my apartment and the squash club. So it's super convenient because I can just pick him up on my way down to the club. Um, then... The next relationship I have that's been really important is I have the same physio and fitness coach, um, and that's a guy called Tom Nohilly, and he's he kind of comes from the running world. He works really heavily with the New, New Jersey New York Track Club, which has a couple of um, couple of Olympic runners on it, and. That's been a really a very very long relationship for me, like probably now like over ten years, and it's been it's been really really good because he does all my fitness programs and all my strength programs, but also because he gives me all my flexibility and massage and physio. He's gotten to know my body really well and gotten to know when I'm starting to get run down and what I need to get myself back to back to the strength levels I need to compete at the highest levels. Um, mm-hmm. So then underneath him, I also have a sports psychologist that I use um, about once a month just to keep myself topped up and make sure everything I'm doing in my personal life isn't conflicting with what I, what I need to be doing in my career. And that's kind of, that's kind of a relationship that's just icing on the cake, helps smooth out any rough edges that I may have. Um, Can we just pause on that for a second? Because I think, um, you know, a lot of times uh, people look at uh, athletes and it's it's really they see more of the physical side. They 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 ask, Mm -hmm. you know, what what is the what's you know, what training do you as if that's kind of like the magic bullet. And I think those are kind of givens, right? Like you you need to be like you said, you need to be physically strong. You need to be sports specific. But, you know, those mental aspects. So, like, what are some of the things that. you know, how do you work on that yourself in order to, to, you said tune up and to stay sharp, but like, what does that mean? Well, a lot of it, a lot of it's just making sure you're, 
living a lifestyle that doesn't conflict with with your sport. So you're trying to make sure everything you're doing, you're excited to be doing and you're motivated to be doing and nothing is really quote unquote work. Mm. Um, you know, you want to make sure you're enjoying your training, you're enjoying the traveling, you're, you're just, you're just making sure everything's clicking really. And you're not, you're not getting burned out. And a lot of that comes down to making, making sure you're giving yourself enough time for, other relationships outside of squash, um, other interests outside of squash, and even making sure you're pushing yourself physically, you're playing enough tournaments and stuff, but you're scheduling them in such a way that you don't ever feel like it's too much and you can't handle playing another one. Yeah. So, but the the thing that's that's probably unique about me that, you know, it'll be true for a few other players is my relationships with my coaches and with my, um, with my physio have been really longstanding relationships and they've kind of morphed into more than just squash relationships. So very well on a, on a personal level and really know what makes me tick. So I'll, I'll look to them for, for advice about pretty much any aspect of, of my life and won't, um, and won't hesitate to, to follow what they think, think are the best decisions for me. Yeah. And, um, sorry, I'd cut you off about, uh, the, the rest of your, your team and you're saying you have your sports psychologist, isn't it? Is there anyone else that makes up uh, team Gordo? Um, I think probably, well, the two last parts of it would be, would be my family. Cause they're, you know, because they play a, a big role in who you are and what, what you do, you know, um, it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily something dramatic. Everyone, everyone, everyone has family and everyone's involved with them, but it's important that they're on the same page with you about what your is. Um, and then also as well for me, peripherally, it's my sponsors, you know, because I'm making sure that I'm using, equipment that I feel I personally really like and I really want to use. So it means that everything that I'm involved with isn't a chore. It's stuff that I want to be part of and I want to be doing. Who who are um, some of your sponsors today? So, um, so probably my main, my main sponsor um, is for my rackets, which is Technofiber. I currently use the CarboFlex, 125s and i love the uh, you know i love the racket i've been using a very some version of this racket or of this shape of racket for the last five years and you know hopefully i play with with this racket or something very similar for the rest of my career because i've found it really works very well for me and i really i really like the frame and as a brand um i really like technofiber i like the way i like their values I like the way they've structured themselves. You know, they really pride themselves on being almost like a family, a very close knit group. And I've really enjoyed that and found the support that I get from their staff really, really unique and really special. Yeah. Um, Then probably my second sponsor is my clothing sponsor, Soul Fire, which is a clothing company that's based here in New York. They actually just opened their flagship store in Brooklyn and Williamsburg. Oh, wow. And I've been with them for 
the last four years. And I was, I was probably one of their, I was certainly their first squash player, one of their first couple of athletes. They, they started out originally as a tennis brand. Um, and now they've kind of morphed from that into a more fitness lifestyle oriented brand. Um, but it's a really, a really special company for me because first of all, it's New York based like myself and the, the warehouse where they design all the clothes is actually about a mile, a mile or two miles down the road from, from my current apartment. So it's been really unique for me to be able to go to the design center every couple of months and see the products they're working on and see their vision and see the artistic talent of the company. And, and it's been a, a real pleasure to be involved with actually. Yeah. So you said, um, you've been involved with them for four years, but h- how long has the company been around? The company has been around about, around about five, five or six years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they're fair. They're fairly new on the scene, but they're, you know, they're really, really expanding quickly. And, and the fact the fact that they've managed to survive in tennis, which is a very competitive market, is you know a real testament to their um, to their product, yeah. the uniqueness of their designs and the quality of their product. Um, yeah, and again, it's it's nice because I you know it's a sm- it's a small company still, so I know the owner, I know the I know the guy who's responsible for all the designs of the clothing, and it's really exciting for me to get to talk to both of them about sort of their vision for the company and, and where they're trying to take it. It's a really unique view that if I was involved with a larger company, I'd never be afforded the opportunity. Yeah. So it's, Um, I mean, it sounds like, and that's only two of your sponsors, but like to you, uh, it's more important about the relationship as well as the product and the quality, right? No, absolutely. Yeah. It's, you know, you know, it starts with good, good product and good quality that that's going to help me perform on court. But then the relationships I build with a company are really, really important to me because you got to remember, right? Like we're away most of the year competing and stuff. So these, these companies that we interact with, they, the people who work for them almost become friends in a way. Yeah. Um, so in terms of my other sponsors, I, I'm involved with Salming for Shoes. Mm-hmm. And I'm just a big I'm a big fan of of the shoe. I I currently use the Race R1, and I've used that I think for the last three three years. And I just really you know there's there's not much to say other than I just I really like how it feels. Yeah. And my last sponsor is a fairly unique one. Um, it's a green tea company called Dumacha, mm. and I actually met them on Twitter because I I tweeted something when I used to commentate with Joey at some of the World Series events about how I was preparing to go on camera with a cup of cup of green tea and get my you know get myself in the right mind space or whatever. Yeah. And they picked up on the tweet and and me and Dumach actually exchanged a couple a couple tweets back and forth and <laughs> Basically, ended ended up in me um, receiving receiving some cans of green tea and writing a few testimonials for them. So, they've been a really unique and a great supporter of mine for the last couple of years. <laughs> that's great. And, and is that? I mean, um, that seems like a pretty u- unique way to pick up a sponsor. But is that how have you found some of the other sponsors to to um, to work with? 
Um, it, well, I mean, Technofiber and Salming, they, they kind of happened organically because they're very involved in squash, you know, so you, you know, so that, that's kind of in the squash world already. So that, that's just works through your connections. You're obviously very aware of the, the products because you've seen other players using them and you've gotten to test them at tournaments or whatever. And you might, you know, because you like a product, you maybe reach out to the company to see if something, if you guys might be able to start a relationship. Mm. Um, the, my relationship with Soulfire started, that was kind of unique how that started because I was at the time four years ago, I didn't have a clothing sponsor and I was buying a lot of Nike clothes just because I kind of liked the look. And I was hoping to get another, hoping to get a clothing sponsor, but they can be harder to come by in the squash world when you're not one of the top players. And I basically was just looking at on tenniswarehouse.com to see what other companies were out there. And I saw Soul, Soulfire and liked their clothing. And I actually just cold called the company and actually got the owner on the phone. I didn't realize I was speaking <laughs> to the owner when I, when I called up, but we sort of, um, we hit it off and I met, you know, I kind of mentioned, you know, I, I must've obviously said a few buzzwords that were the right things to get his, get his interest a little bit. And he, he got me a couple samples of clothing shortly thereafter. And we've sort of built up relationships slowly over time. You know, we started with just a couple, couple sets of clothing and it's built up the more, the more the brand and I have gotten to know each other. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I have seen you play in, in some of uh, their clothing and I've seen uh, some of the other tennis players and it really is, I mean, they're hitting the ball out of the park in terms of design, like you said, design and, and really just how distinct it is um, to create that. Mm-hmm. And I think especially these days, like you, we were talking about earlier with social media and and uh, how those images can really impact audiences. And I think um, they're really kind of hitting that, that, that confluence of like those two things. So um, you really, um, it's impressive what they're doing. Yeah. Um, so beyond, um, just the switching gears a little bit about, uh, talking about overall, like promoting squash and, um, obviously you, you have been on the tour promoting your own sponsors and, 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 and all that, but, um, I'm sure you've been asked to, uh, promote the sport in certain ways, whether it's with us squash or PSA or just even local tournament directors. And I always think that that can, <laughs> There's some interesting moments that that can get you into. Uh, what are some of the memorable, like what are some of the hits and what are some of the maybe flops that have happened um, with you being asked to do uh, certain things? Oh, that's, that's, that's a tough one, Connor. Um, I mean, I mean, I've had some interesting experiences with the tournament of champions doing some, doing some press for them really early in the morning. It seems like the, the, the news people like to film stuff very early, like five or six in the morning. So that's always (laughs) aggressive having to get up there and get down for that. And then the other thing that's always interesting is news anchors tend to be really, really overly enthusiastic because they have to, they sort of have to project to have it look good on camera. So it's always a bit interesting when it's that early in the morning and you're really dragging and then you've got a news anchor that looks like they've popped about six Red Bulls and two Espressos, you know? (laughs) So, um, in terms of, in terms of other stuff, I mean, there's generally, generally it's a lot of just sponsor hits, you know, tournaments asking players to, to hit with sponsors and, and events you get, you know, tournament functions you get invited to. I, you know, I think 
the squash world is really small, right? So a lot of these, a lot of these events we, we as players go to, we very often see similar people that we've seen over the years. And in a lot of ways, it can be quite nice because you build relationships with people, you know, people you might not initially speak to, but after a year or two, they've, they or you approach each other and you get to know them over the course of time. And it makes it a very nice, almost familiar relationship you can get with a lot of the sponsors out there on the tour. Yeah. Well, um, I remember seeing uh, a bit that you did was, um, wasn't there a a boxing bit that you did? (laughs) Yeah, we did. We did. Yeah, we did a, uh, sort of, um, how would you call it? Like a comparison between squash and boxing for squash TV. It was me and Steve Coppinger and they took us down to a boxing gym in Philadelphia and had us put through a session by a professional boxing coach. And it was, it was quite a funny situation because squash TV billed it to us is basically go down there and, you know, have a chat with the coach and, you know, sort of hold your rackets and talk about the similarities a bit, maybe do a little bit, little bit of skipping and maybe hit the heavy bag a couple times because it looked good on camera and that would be about it. Well, the next thing we know is we've got this boxing coach putting us through like a 20 minute circuit with sledgehammers and battle ropes and all kinds of stuff. And then getting us in the ring for sparring and have his, his partner that was named Iron Man hit us with, hit us with these plastic sticks that we were supposed to be ducking away from while we were sparring with someone else. So it ended up being, it ended up being a pretty intense hour. Especially if you're going in thinking it would just be, yeah, we'll, we'll go in and pose a little bit. We'll, we'll hit it, make it look good. And suddenly you're in a full training session. Oh yeah. Yeah. We went in there thinking it was just like purely like a made for TV, you know, stand around, smile. And hopefully we don't say anything, you know, too, too off too off off topic and instead it basically ended up being canceling canceling everything else we had we were planning to do the rest of the day because we were so tired and needed to go (laughs) back to the hotel and rest oh man and do you think uh what do you think the 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 trainer there thought of of squash players Uh, do you think a good impression i hope so i hope so i mean we we certainly put out a lot of work in that session. <laughs> um, I think he, in all seriousness, I think he was fairly impressed with the cardiovascular capacity we had because we were able to, you know, we were able to keep going through the session, you know, because yeah. it was quite a rigorous session. We were able to, you know, keep going at relatively the same speed as when we started. Um, probably the only only issues were some of the more specific skill sets to the boxing because we were doing quite a lot on the speed bag and and the sparring that we were a bit deficient in the technique and then also as well in in the upper body strength as well because a lot of the exercises they do tend to be a little bit more upper body based where for us obviously we're doing a lot more lunging and squatting based exercises yeah well good i'm glad i'm sure you did a squash proud that that day (laughs) Uh, oh and it was in it was also it was in philadelphia right yep 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 it was at the joe hands boxing gym joe hands okay so trying to be a little rocky-esque yep yep absolutely yeah well um one of the other things i want to talk about was um your you and national teams which um i think this i've i've heard this for a while and i'm not sure if it's it's been verified but are you the most decorated u.s national team player i 
suspect I I suspect I am. I mean, I think some of the records going back are a bit shaky. I know I know Richard Chin has played the most world team championships of any American at sticks. Mm-hmm. So touch wood if I make if I make the team for this year's world teams, that'll be my six. Okay. So that that would tie me with him for world teams, but I've I've probably played more Pan American games and Pan American championships than than he has. So I think I I think if you went on a total match count, I might be just total barely caps. ahead. Yeah, total caps. Yeah. But you're still only one of the most. I mean, um, uh, well, I, I've I, got I mean, under my under my belt. I've got um, I've got five world teams, three Pan American games, and then a whole bunch of Pan American Fed Cups. So mm-hmm. so there's a fair bit, and then a few world games as well. Oh yeah, yep. so that's true. A, yeah, definitely two world games. So there's a fair, there's a fair bit in there. And uh, two U.S. Junior Team. Yeah, two two U.S. Junior World Junior Team Championships as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, and on the men's side, you're, you're the first year you performed with the men's team was back in uh, 2005, right? And um, so, how how old were you then? I think I just turned 18. And what was it like being, uh, kind of, uh, you know, talk a little bit about the difference of like you being the young kid on the team. And then now you're, you're one of the, mm. the seasoned veterans and that transition. Mm. Um, I think, I think back then it, it was, it, it was one of those where I never, I never, even though I was a young kid on the team, I never felt massively singled out because I actually started my U S national team career at the same time that Julian Illingworth did. Mm-hmm. So he and I kind of went through that whole introductory process together. Um, that first event we played was in, it was a Pan American fed cup in Tepic, Mexico. And it was, it was just an, it was an amazing experience just to be there with all the other countries and basically just see how much bigger the squash world was than, than you realized, you know, and also just to see how many, players of a high level there were from so many different countries that you just didn't realize were playing the game at such a high level. Yeah. So, and, and then, you know, it, I think becoming a veteran on the team just kind of creeps up on you because you're just, you're just focused on what the next event is. You're focused on kind of, um, just, you know, just playing and winning. And then, you find you find your you've played you know so many events and and people are asking you what it was like you know ten years ago and things like that and it just it just kind of happens organically without you even really thinking about it. Um, one thing I would say one one event in particular that was really special my second world team championship was in Chennai, India, and that was that actually coincided with Richard with Richard Chin Sticks World Team Championship and Richard was my childhood squash coach so it was a really unbelievable opportunity that we both got to represent the u.s together oh, and it wow. was just it was just kind of amazing how everything aligned to have that to have that work out you know it was really great getting to be there on that team with him after growing up and seeing him represent the u.s for so many years and uh do you remember what the lineup was in in uh, back in 2007 in in chennai yeah, for the U.S. team, who was the who was playing for once. for that one? I for that one I went went on with Richard. Um, it was Julian, 
myself, Jamie Crombie, and Richard, I think. So, and I think the first one I played in Tepic, which I think you said was 2005 or four, um, that was that was Michael Puertas, um, Preston Quick, Julian, and myself. So there was kind of a, an interesting part in the national team where um, you had these these guys like Richard Chin and Jamie Crombie, Michael Porters, who were even Damian Walker, who were um, just you know uh, mainstays on the U.S. national team, and then basically yourself mm-hmm. and Julian coming up through the ranks. Do you remember that the kind of like tipping point when you guys finally started, you know, that that started taking them down versus just clipping at their heels? What what year was that turning point for you? It's it's kind of tough to remember, and it, it was. I think it, one of the reasons it was tough to remember is because the way the team was selected back then was really different than it is now. Mm. Because then you you kind of tended to have every all the players tended to more be teaching pros at the time as well. So we actually had a pretty good domestic tour that we'd use to select the team. I, I think I think it was called like the Cherry Farm Selection Tour. It was sponsored by this tart cherry juice, cherry farm. Mm-hmm. And we'd have about five or six events and, that would culminate in a, in a trials. So we'd, we'd all have to play these events and be jockeying for position. And in a lot of ways, it was a really, really good, um, good experience for me and Julian, because it provided us an opportunity to challenge the older players several times a year and kind of get a measuring stick to how we were improving and where we were. Um, now the selection process has changed a little bit in that we tend to pick the team off, generally speaking, off the world rankings because we have players competing a lot more regularly on the PSA World Tour. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and in terms of, uh, I, I know that, what was it, back in 2011, uh, with the te- men's team finishing six, that, that that was probably the, the best team achievement that you guys have had it. But, you know, personally with you and the team, is there, has there been a match that just really stuck out to you that, um, you know, where you came through and, 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 and helped get a team victory? Yeah. I mean, there, there was, I think this will, this will be, this will be a little bit unusual. I mean, it wasn't actually a team match. It was, it was a doubles match that Julian and I played together at the Pan American games in Guadalajara. And so even though it wasn't quote unquote, a team match, it was still representing the U S and the reason it stood out for me, the reason it stood out for me is, um, firstly it was with Julian and he and I had spent so much time together on, on national teams that, you know, we'd almost, we'd almost started to kind of expect in a way, expect the other to be there. And we'd both become part of the furniture a little bit. <laughs> um, but the thing that was amazing is we, we managed to get to the finals and we were playing Mexico in Mexico in, oh, wow. in, a, in quite a small compact venue that was packed with basically 199% Mexicans. And then the 1% was the rest of our teammates. <laughs> so it was kind of us against us against the rest of the world, you know. So yeah. it was a really, um, it was a very exciting match to be be a part of, and it was it was a big deal for Mexico as well because they they beat us two love in about ninety minutes or something something ridiculous, and and the next day the the Mexican boys who'd beaten us 
um, ended up on the back page of every newspaper in Mexico because I think it was the first gold medal that Mexico won at that Pan American Games. Oh wow! Well, and, and just to give just to give some context, um, 2011 is a Pan American Championships, and um, that's the year before the Olympics. And I mean, these are uh, regional championships with. Um, every nation in that in that region competing i mean these are this is a huge deal i think in the u.s we're so used to seeing those stages uh, whether it's on nbc or or or, you know um, very easily accessible but i mean in these other countries i mean they i remember parades and they they really make a huge deal out of um well well, the thing the thing to realize realize about it is here in the u.s we're we're really spoiled and this is a good thing we're really spoiled for olympic success so we we really focus on having our best athletes at the Olympics and using events like the Pan American games, regional games for either for gaining experience to help bring athletes up to that Olympic level or to qualify them for the Olympics Mm. where in, in South America, this isn't to say they don't have some fantastic Olympic athletes, but they don't quite have the level of success we do in terms of the medal table and the medal count. So winning a Pan American games medal for them is not only a huge deal domestically, but it's also an enormous deal monetarily because very often medals at, a, at the Pan American Games are very highly incentivized monetarily by by national governments and regional governments. Mm. So, you know, so when when we lost that that final to to the Mexican boys, one of the reasons it was such a charged match is they had tens of thousands of dollars on the line if they if they won you know for for a medal bonus yeah wow and and obviously the the gold medal bonus was quite substantially higher than the silver medal bonus so you know the motivation wasn't just to win for you know for their country and for self-pride but there was that monetary motivation as well wow and what were these matches being televised uh down in uh, in mexico Yes, I, I can't remember if that particular. I think that match might have been live. I mean, I mean, obviously, I was on court, so I was a little bit <laughs> oblivious to everything else yeah. going on. Going on, but but I remember it was a really a really heated affair, and I remember um, I remember basically it was on a traditional um, traditional glass back court with the fans were about five feet behind the court. So they were quite up on top of you. And, you know, there were flags and there were chants, Mexico chants going. And it was, it was all quite, quite intense, you know? <laughs> I can imagine. And uh, so, you, I mean, you, you picked this as one of the, your more memorable experiences, but which way did the match go? Oh, uh, we lost, we lost to, to love something like, something like 11, 11, nine, 11, eight or something like that. It's a, it's a pretty so, remarkable, but in in ninety minutes though, in ninety minutes, oh, wow. which was a bit which was a bit much, but you know, yeah. Um, so I mean that that's you representing uh, Team USA, and now uh, just talking a little bit about uh, yourself, and um, you know you've been able to to win the the junior national championship and and even uh, uh, knock out um, Julian Illingworth's uh, run where where you won in two thousand thirteen. Talk about that and what those moments meant to you. Yeah. I mean, winning, winning the nationals in 2013 was a really big deal for me and was in some ways a huge relief because Julian had had such a, 
such a kind of a stranglehold on the event. I mean, at that point, I think he'd won it eight times, eight consecutive times. It it almost it almost didn't feel realistic to even even hope to win one because he was playing such a high level and was so confident in especially in that particular event. So when um when Gilly beat him in the semi and and I managed to get through to the final, I I really felt there was a huge opportunity to be had and I was really extremely happy with myself that I was able to play as well as I did and take that opportunity and and get a national title to my name because it was something that I was kind of in you know I was trying not to let it worry me but in the back of my mind I was starting to go I've been trying for so many years and it still hasn't happened and is this is this maybe something that's going to get away from me you know yeah so I mean was it um was it pretty surreal when it actually happened yeah I mean it was it was you know it was it was just it was just really it was really unbelievable and it was it was really special for me because it was here in here just outside New York in Connecticut so quite a lot of people that were really close to me were able to come you know um my mom was there R- Richard Chin who was my first squash coach was was there and then my fitness coach who so it was and Tommy's kids who I actually do a bit of training with in the summers. So it was really special to have have everyone there and kind of be able to go through that moment with everybody, you know? Yeah, I can imagine. I mean that's that's a huge crowning achievement and um, you know, it's still uh <laughs> there's still more to come. I mean, you're only thirty right now and uh lots of good years ahead of you within squash and um uh you know but one of the things I'd be curious to also know, I mean, we, we've talked pretty extensively about, you know, squash and um, your experience there and, and your thoughts, but what if you weren't doing squash? What, what do you think you would be uh, doing? I mean, that's a, that's, that's a million dollar question, really. I'm not really, I'm not really yeah. sure because everything been dedicated to the sport, you know, and since a very young age, it's in a lot of ways, pretty much all I've done. So I think if I wasn't involved with squash, I'd hopefully be involved in some other sport in some some capacity. Yeah. Um, you know, and even if I wasn't inv- involved playing professionally, because you know, in a lot of ways to play professionally, not only do you have to have a you know a great skill set, but you have to have a bit of luck to be at the right place at the right time. Um, hopefully, I'd still be involved in some sport in some maybe in a managerial role or some some kind of role. You know. Yeah. Well, um, I know that you, there's another sport in your life that, uh, that you, you do a fair amount of, uh, with ice hockey and, and, um, talk briefly about how that came about for you. So, so hockey was actually the first sport I played when I was, when I was young and I was absolutely obsessed with it. And it was a real dream of mine to, to continue on with it. And, as I got older, my, my mom was not that keen on the checking aspect of it. She was a bit worried with the whole concussion thing and tried to kind of steer me away from it, which um, she actually managed to do because growing up in Manhattan there 20 years ago, there wasn't a huge hockey scene. I mean, there was a bit, but not enormous. So she managed to get my attention elsewhere, which I think was much to her relief. But then when I was 21, I was actually living up in 
Hartford, Connecticut, and I had a I had a pretty bad torn hamstring and had to have three months off the the tour. And while I was rehabbing it, I had a lot of free time on my hands. And I Hartford has a minor league league team, the affiliate for the Rangers, the Hartford Wolfpack. And I started going to games and make a real evening of it. And I'd go early to watch the players warm up and really get my money's worth. And from there, I was like, oh, I when my hamstring heals, maybe I should skate again. I haven't skated in, you know, 15 years or something. So I started skating again. And then I was like, oh, well, let me ask the rink manager at Trinity where I was training. Maybe he'll let me take a stick and puck on the ice. So asked him if it would be okay if no one was around. So I got a stick and started messing around with a stick. And then I, after a couple of weeks, I realized I didn't really just like messing around with a stick and puck that I really wanted to play. So I went out and got myself all the gear and got back into it. And since, since then for all of my twenties, it's been a, a really major part of my life away from squash. And I think in, in a lot of ways it's helped my squash because it's, it's helped me play sport for the right reasons, you know, mm. just because you want to be out there competing, you know, just grinding away and enjoy, enjoying it and having a sweat. And it's not really about the winning or the losing or making money or anything like, or the ranking points. It's really just about going out there and, and trying to improve and enjoying, enjoying being active. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so fortunately, you know, it's something, you know, as you know, once I retire in a few years, I'll probably try and get a little bit more involved in, you know, I still now I skate at least once a week during the season. And then in the summers and the off season, I'll skate like two or three times a week. Um, and are you playing in the a ice league? Well, I, I sort of fluctuate a bit. So during the season, I try not to, I try to just, I have a couple of friends that, that basically rent ice and get 30 guys to show up every every Tuesday so we we have the same two teams every week and we always we always play each other every week so I kind of do that because it, it's kind of steady and I know exactly what's coming so I know it won't be nothing cra- too crazy is going to happen but then in the summer I'll sub in for friends of mine's league teams and stuff like that and you know sometimes I'm trying to be coerced into playing some tournaments but we'll see how that goes <laughs> Oh, it's good. Well, um, you actually, uh, and, and this might be the answer to one of my, uh, I just have a few closing questions here and we'll wrap up in a, in a few minutes, but, um, um, and this goes to kind of, um, if you could pass along any advice to yourself, you know, at let's say age 20 or 25, but by passing along that advice, it wouldn't change anything of who you are today. It would just maybe make it a little bit easier. W- what would you be passing along? Would you say start skating earlier or, or what do you think, uh, some advice might be that you pass down. Uh, I think, um, I think if I, if I was going to pass on advice, I'd just tell myself to, to relax and enjoy the process and not to force it. Mm -hmm. Um, that, that you, that you will get there and that you don't need to, you don't need to, you don't need to stress about it, but you need to enjoy every, every phase, phase of the process. And then the other thing I probably tell myself is you you don't, there's no, there's no magic formula. It's just, it's just hard work and being consistent and just keep putting the hours in and try and keep ramping up the effort levels just little by little. And, and you'll get there over time. It just, it's a process and it doesn't happen overnight. Mm, That makes a lot of sense. Well, um, 
in terms of, you know, we're just turning over the clock here on, on, on 2017 and, um, you know, what uh, forecasting your next season, whether it's, you know, on squash or your own personal life or anything like, you know, what are some of the things that you're most excited about uh, this upcoming year? I mean, the, the tour is getting, is getting stronger every year. It's super competitive. It's super deep. Um, so for me this year, I'm just really excited about, about the opportunity to go out there and prove myself against some really challenging players and try and get as many, as many good wins against players ranked ahead of me as I can. Great. And, uh, what are, um, in terms of where you are right now, what are some upcoming tournaments that you're, you're focused on? So I've got a fairly, fairly busy couple of weeks. I'm going to Detroit next week for the Motor City Open. Then uh, three weeks from now, I'll be in Medicine Hat, Alberta. And then in the end of February, I'll be in Chicago for the Windy City Open, followed up by Portland for the Oregon Open. And then the start of March, I have the SL Green, which is our men's national championship in Philadelphia. So this is uh this is the the heart of the season for you and uh this Yeah, it sh- it sure is. It's I mean it's really exciting. There's a lot of opportunity and um you know, slightly challenging cuz I need to obviously say no to all my hockey buddies when they're calling me to <laughs> sub in for their league teams for midnight skates and things like that, but you know, these are it goes with a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you're when you're talking to some of your skating buddies and you say that you're a professional squash player, um, <laughs> how many of them shake their head like, okay, I'm not quite sure what that is, or or how many of them actually know squash? Uh, a fair few of them know what it is. Most of them, I would say, think I should probably dedicate more time to to beer league hockey. <laughs> um, they're they're more interested in the strength of strength of their teams. I mean, I've had one particular friend that thought it might be a good idea for me to miss a tournament so I could play a hockey tournament. <laughs> um, you had to break the news. Which, uh, yeah. yeah, I had to break the news. It was easier said than done, but um, I guess you win some, you lose some. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, good. It sounds like you have a uh, you know busy schedule coming up, and looking forward to following your results. And uh, is there anything, uh, any closing thoughts or asks that you have of, of people listening that um, you know, whether it's for yourself or for the sport or something that you might want to share? Yeah, I think I think we've got a great sport, and you know, everyone out there can just talk about it, talk about it in public places, and don't be shy about you know, telling people who don't know what the sport is, telling them about it and telling them to go try it. And, and if you have, you know, if you play in public clubs and always, always try and invite friends to the clubs and invite them to invite them to try the sport and, and really explain like how simple it can be to, to get started and how easy it is to get hooked. Yeah. And and it's a great workout too. Um, it's a good way to stay. Yeah, that goes <laughs> that goes without saying, you know, and I yeah. mean all you have to do is bring, you know, bring bring someone who's slightly skeptical down to the club and throw a heart rate monitor on them and on them and get them on court and just see where their heart rate goes after 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah, I mean I really do think it's um you know, I think that's one of the the things I know US squash is trying to help tackle and is um once people try the sport, I think people get really hooked and addicted. It's uh, so it's just trying to get, like you said, I think really um, 
not just saying, oh, you should try it, but literally taking them onto the court themselves and trying it out. That's the way I've seen more more and more people really get, get hooked. Absolutely. And I mean, for people that don't live in specific squash hotbed cities, you know, where accessibility may be more of an issue, don't be afraid of trying to be creative and adaptive. You know, if you only have racquetball courts, you know, still get out there and play. It's all about hitting the ball against the wall, even if you maybe have to alter some rules, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've even been, I've, I've been to places that only have racquetball courts, which are obviously fairly similar dimensions, but don't have the tin on the front wall, wall where I've still gone out there and had a good session and just kind of adapted adapted whatever my focus is to make use of the court, even though it doesn't have a 10. Yeah. <laughs> so plain squash everywhere. Absolutely. Well, good. I, uh, you know, at this point, I just want to wrap things up and, and thank you for your time. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll, what we can do is check in with you uh, after uh, the end of the season and see how, how this went. And uh, we'll continue to check in. But I really appreciate all the time. And um, it's been a pleasure having you. No, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Connor. It's been great to it's been great to chat with you. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and well, until next time, be well and have fun. 